Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm just really sick of all the spim I've been getting lately. Spim? Is that like spam? It is, but through IMs. Oh. Like, hmm. have you noticed on our Instagram page that we get a lot of, like, spam IMs? That's true, we do. Yeah, so it's like, you just can't escape the spim or the spam. You can't. Especially, like, during election time. Like, yes. now you're getting spim spam and text spams. I don't know those those have a special name. I don't know. But I've been getting so many texts. Are you? I'm not. Okay, I must just be on some crazy list because I'm getting, like, videos sent to me and texts, and it's, like, you know, all about the who's running for what, and if you like this, you better do this. And, you know, they're, like, threats, empty threats. Oh, yeah, I'm not getting those texts. Just getting a lot of mailers. Like, all of my mail Mm -hmm. this week has been, like, political ads. Yeah, well, you're lucky that you're not getting the texts. I don't know what something I must have signed up for at one point is, like, got my number out there, and it's annoying. I understand. But anyhow, welcome to Addicted to Murder, and we are starting a new case. We are. Before we start the new case, I didn't jump the gun. (laughs) Sometimes I do. Um, Courtney, it's uh, question time. It is question time, and so it's my question today. And so, Trisha, has anyone ever told you you look like a celebrity? And if so, which one? When I, okay, it hasn't been for a while, but when I was in like middle school, high school, all the time was I told that I look like Linda Hamilton from Terminator, the mom. Mm. I heard that 20 different people probably. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is, but yeah. So that is the one that I got all the time. (laughs) Got it. Okay. So one of our um, kiddos used to tell me that I look like Pam Beasley from The Office when she'd come in for therapy. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's... Jenna Fisher's great. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't see that either, but I was like, okay, well, I'll take it. (laughs) What about you? Um, I had a professor uh, back in college who told me I looked like Alison Brie, the actress. She She was on, like, Community, and she was in Glow... Um, the women wrestling one? Mm-hmm. Which one was she in that? Um, I don't know the characters. I just know she was in it. She has oh. dark hair. I mean, I used to watch mm-hmm. Glow, Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling. Yeah. Right. It was funny. I, I'm not caught up to mm-hmm. it. The I think the main person's got dark hair. I wonder if that's her. I think she's one of the main characters. Okay. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. And one time someone told me I looked like Rory Gilmore, which I was mm. super thrilled about because I'm obsessed with Gilmore Girls. When your hair's down like mm-hmm. that, you can you kind of do yeah. a little bit like Alexis Bledel. Right, Bledel. yeah. yeah. Bledel. Mm-hmm. So, But I could also see you looking a little bit like Lorelai because you're darker haired than Alexis. Alex. That's true. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right on. So those were my two celebrity lookalikes, apparently. Sweet. If any of you out there have seen our pictures mm-hmm. and have other ideas we'd love to hear from you yeah because i haven't been told i like linda but you know linda hamilton's pretty dang old now i mean com- c- right. compared to me it's but. an old <laughs> reference <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. but yeah so okay good question um so before we start this case i know i've told courtney this already but um i and i did kind of post it on our instagram i randomly picked this killer i had never heard of him I was Googling for serial killer books, trying to find my next one. I didn't want to do anyone real well known because we just did Richard Ramirez. 
And this one popped up and it was like a brand new book. And um, it was called The Last Call Killer. And it is, uh, I don't know where I just put it, but um, anyhow, it was about who we're going to go over. And as I'm, um, you know, learning about this killer and I wrote everything down that we're going to talk about today and we're going to do it all in one episode. Um, and this killer didn't even have a Wikipedia page until the author, I think, of this book created one very, very recently. Um, I was watching American Horror Story the other day, the brand new one, and they are doing this season, or at least the first few episodes, I'm imagining it's going to be the whole season, on our serial killer that we're going to talk about today. So it was just crazy coincidence. Super crazy. I mean... Fate telling us, like, it's the time to bring this killer to prominence. Yeah, and I mean, they do throw in a supernatural element, of course, because it's American Horror Story, but it's... Even some of the details, and I'll probably point one out, that's just really crazy. Um, it made it so obvious that it was what what we're doing, and I Googled it, and sure as shit, yep, <laughs> it's based on Richard Rogers. So let's hear all about him. Yeah, okay, so here we go. Richard Westall Rogers was born June 16, 1950, and he will later be known by the moniker The Last Call Killer. He was the oldest of five children, and he was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts. His dad was a lobster fisherman, and his mom worked for a telephone company. Sometime after the children were born, they all, the whole family, moved to Florida. And there isn't much known about Richard's childhood, but we do have this information. He was a skinny kid, and he was pretty quiet and kind of just stayed in the background. He had a high-pitched voice and what was described as a, you know, quote, effeminate personality. Take that what you will. That was just how his classmates would describe him. He did not like to go hunting or fishing with his father. He preferred to do Girl Scouts with his mother. As a teenager, he was gawkward. Gawkward. Oh, that's like a good word. Yeah, gawky like a and, portmanteau. Yeah. <laughs> he was gawky and awkward or gawkward, but uh, a very good student who got straight A's. He was very tidy, um, and he was protective of his younger siblings. He was teased in school because of his speech and his mannerisms, and he had very few friends. I say teased, but I'm sure he was just straight-up bullied. In fact, in high school once, he refused to dress down for gym, so the boys in the locker room tied him to a shower and then turned the shower on. And this made Richard cry, and he made, it made him cry in front of everyone at school, and it was you know, obviously humiliating and probably traumatic for him. His dad eventually decided that his efforts of masculine projects were just being wasted on Richard, and so he decided that teaching these things to his daughter was a better use of his time. Richard was also bullied because he was in the French club. So, Courtney, would you like to speculate on anything regarding what we do know of Richard's childhood? It sounds like his father didn't really accept or like him for who he was. I imagine it would have been very hard to be like a non-gender conforming boy growing up in the 50s and 60s especially as the eldest boy in a family you know assuming that his father held sort of traditional beliefs his father likely had imagined having a son who would join him in the family business on the lobster boat and be a strong you know hyper masculine man that he could brag about to all his friends thus having a son like Richard would potentially be disappointing, and Richard probably really knew that. Um, And I'd wonder if Richard's perfectionism with grades and, you know, keeping other areas of his life tidy was in some way connected to, you know, trying to earn his family's approval um, and, you know, remained very closely tied to his self-esteem growing up, which I imagine was not very, 
very good through most of his childhood. Right. It doesn't help to be you know, bullied. So not only at home do you not feel accepted, you're not accepted by your peers. Right. So exactly. That's be very isolating and lonely. Um, so allegedly, I can't, you know, find the actual records online, but Richard had a nervous breakdown while he was in high school. It was said that Richard took a knife from his kitchen and stabbed the woman across the street with it. She was apparently much older, and it was speculated that she had turned him down in some way. Richard was not arrested for this, but he was institutionalized for a period of, t- period of time. Courtney, any thoughts? Let's just assume this is a true account. Okay, so I hate the phrase nervous breakdown because it could mean so many things and is just sort of used to pretty much describe anything that leads to someone being hospitalized um, for a psychiatric problem. You know, it could be referring to like an extreme manic episode, could be a panic and trauma response to something, or it could be like a psychotic break among lots of other possibilities, you know. Or it could be that there were, you know, signs of violent thoughts and psychopathic tendencies that had been missed growing up since he was so kind of quiet and meek. Um, And this event maybe seemed to appear out of nowhere to the people around him. Um, But no matter what, you know, the teenage brain is not fully developed yet. And it's prone to impulsivity and overconfidence and, you know, all those things that get teenagers into trouble. So... I actually agree with the decision for him to kind of go to mental health treatment rather than jail at this point. Um, You know, although the methods used at the time in the 60s in psychiatric hospitals are very different from how it would be now. Um, Treating a teen in sort of like a first violent episode um, as a mental health patient, I think, was actually a good choice. Okay. I wish we knew more about it. There's just so little online. Exactly. All of this is speculation. Yeah, and he doesn't give interviews. So, Richard did go back to school after he was institutionalized, and he graduated in 1968. He then went to a small school for college about 200 miles away from where he grew up. At the school, what stood out about Richard was how he didn't stand out. I guess it was a very small school, and the fact that he went out uh, or went about virtually unnoticed is somewhat of an enigma. Now, by this time, and probably for some time prior, Richard realized he was homosexual. However, he was very much still in the closet. The school he went to was a very religious one, and he would have understandably been afraid to come out. In fact, this is a quote from the book, a gay student who came out was reportedly moved into an off-campus apartment by the administration for his own safety. Courtney, can you discuss a little bit about what may happen to a person who has to hide their sexuality, especially because to be open could potentially be dangerous or life-threatening? So the 1960s and 70s were a challenging time to be gay. You know, in most states, having gay sex was literally a crime. And in fact, it didn't become completely legal in the U.S. until 2003. And, you know, being gay was also considered to be a mental illness until 1973. And even then, it was not widely accepted in society, even after it was taken out of the DSM. So Richard, you know, having already been bullied for having a more, you know, feminine interests or personality, likely would have been terrified to be exposed as a gay man at that time. You know, when a person has to hide a part of themselves, it can often turn into intense shame and self-hatred towards, like, this part of them. Um, You know, a lot of gay people have described um, experiencing what's referred to as internalized homophobia, 
So it's the fear and hatred of homosexuality is so ingrained from society into someone's mind that it's almost impossible to accept it as a legitimate part of themselves that doesn't deserve to be hated. And it can create intense mental anguish, confusion, and internal conflict. Richard had two, two roommates in college. His first roommate, Donald Cubberly, remembers Richard as being a quiet guy who read a lot of books but was nice enough. He said Richard sported an ROTC shaved head and that got him the nickname of Q-tip. But after a couple weeks, Richard moved in with a different roommate. This roommate was a mathematics major, and per the book, the two of them were inseparable throughout their time together. I'm unsure if a romantic relationship blossomed, as that was not mentioned in our sources. In 1972, Richard graduated with a BA in French. Richard then went on to graduate school at the University of Maine in 1973. While there, on Saturday on a Saturday morning, Richard allegedly excuse me, Richard alleged that one of his housemates, Frederick Spencer, was going through Richard's things. When Richard called him on it, Fred turned around and charged at Richard with a hammer. In defense, Richard hit Fred on the back of the head with a roofing hammer that he just happened to have um, eight times. Fred was still alive at this time, so in the name of self-defense, Richard then put a plastic bag over his head and suffocated him. What did Richard do with the body, you may ask? Well, he wrapped it in a Boy Scout tent, waited until nobody was home and it was, you know, dark, dragged the body down the stairs and out to his car, then dropped it off in some local woods. A few days later, Fred's body was found by a couple of cyclists. He had no shirt on, was covered in blood, and wrapped in that green tent. Richard didn't really even clean up after this, and with a quick search of his room, they found the hammer and there was blood and body matter all over. Richard was arrested and he pleaded not guilty. So the trial for this began on October 29th. There's no transcript to this trial that we found, but based on what the researcher of the book we're using speculates, um, there may have been a strong chance that Richard accused Fred of, quote, hitting on him. None of the newspaper coverage suggests uh, Payne, the attorney, used a gay panic defense, but at least one spectator remembers something to that effect. Decades later, Orano residents recalled a gay angle to the tragic event. They heard Fred had come on to Richard, that this act precipitated the killing. Um, regardless of that possibility, the charges were reduced to manslaughter, and then he was ultimately found not guilty of even that. The jury believed his self-defense bullshit. There were no defensive wounds on Richard. The blows were to the back of the head, and then he suffocated him after he hit him eight times. Courtney? I am just rolling my eyes so hard right now. There is absolutely no part of this scenario that reads as self-defense. Mm -mm. Um, and that idea of like the gay panic defense, which surprisingly was used in courts for far too long, um, I think it just shows the misunderstanding of homosexuality and sexuality in general and the bigotry of, you know, the people mm -hmm. who were on that jury. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, granted, again, we don't have the whole what happened, but on the little that we have on the surface, it sounds utterly ridiculous, preposterous. There's no way in hell he should have gotten away with this. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. After all of this, Richard uh, changed vocations and schools. He moved to New York and went to Pace University School of Nursing. He finished up there in 1978 and got a master's degree in science, and soon after, he started work at Mount Sinai Medical Center, where he worked as a surgical nurse. Nothing more is really known of Richard's life until a few, few, excuse me, a few years later. 
In June of 1986, Richard met Sandy Harrow, an older businessman at the GH Club on East 53rd Street in New York City. Richard and Sandy eventually struck up a conversation about Richard's new apartment. He hadn't been there long yet, but neighbors were quick to tell you how meticulous Richard was. Now, this is just one of those parts um, on the American Horror Story and on there is actually a couple episodes of this guy on, you know, some crime shows. We watched the one and the neighbors would talk about how his vacuum was always going and the lines on the carpet were like perfectly, you know, aligned vacuum lines. And on the American Horror Story, they show this carpet. So whoever did that also watched the same show we watched. <laughs> so anyhow, um, where am I? Oh. Oh, he was like almost obsessed with cleanliness. Um, And this was reiterated time and time again in the book about how clean and neat he was. His, you know, video collection was impeccably neat and everything was just perfectly clean and in its place. Richard invited Sandy back to Staten Island to check out his new apartment. Sandy initially refused as the commute from Manhattan was just too much. But Richard offered to drive him there and then back. So Sandy agreed. While there, Richard went to the bathroom and made his guest a drink. Orange juice. Well, Sandy had requested diet soda, but, you know, he got orange juice. Courtney, I wonder if he got orange juice because it was a strong enough flavor to cover the taste of a medication that was added. That's a good I mean, a good guess. Yeah, so he, yeah, he pulled a Dahmer here. He spiked Sandy's drink, allegedly with something. Um, the last thing Sandy remembers after drinking the orange juice was, quote, he could see himself fall forward on the dark blue rug. So he woke up hours later naked on his back with his hands and ankles bound with a bunch of hospital ID bracelets. When he started to scream, Richard put a needle in a vein of his hand and said, quote, that will take care of you for a while. Sandy went dark again. Sandy vaguely remembers being put back into his clothes and pushed up into his apartment. He woke up several hours later and got a ride to the police department. He went to the hospital for testing. He had bruises on his hands. And this was the time of the, you know, really hysterical AIDS epidemic, you know, so he was he was scared he was going to get HIV. So he requested a rape kit that came back negative. Richard was arrested on August 18th, five weeks after the assault on Sandy. Two days later, he was released and back on the job. Courtney, a few things. Can you go over a little bit about Richard's pension for tidiness and order? Are we looking at maybe OCD? Anything you want to say about that? Also, please get, um, give us any other opinions on what I just talked about. So it is possible that Richard had obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, one of the most common compulsions in OCD is the need for ordering and things to be kind of like just right. So his organization of his video collections and for the specific lines on the carpet when he vacuumed, they could be related to that. You know, what we don't know if is if, you know, he'd become very upset if his system was disrupted or how much time he spent, you know, making these things perfect. Because, you know, some people are just naturally more organized and tidy without it having to be a disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need a little bit more information to kind of say that for sure. Um, It is also interesting, though, to compare kind of this habit of tidiness to how messy he left the scene when he killed his roommate. Mm -hmm. You know, he may have increased his diligence about cleaning sort of after this event. Like he learned something there. Um, And then as for his attack on Sandy, it is very clear that this was planned out a great deal of, like, in detail and ahead of time. 
you know, there'd be no reason for him to just have drugs and a bunch of medical bracelets lying around his apartment. Right. And, you know, something in a hypodermic needle. Right. Exactly. So, okay, so just to clarify on the OCD, OCD is only OCD if if it disrupts your life. Right. Okay. The trial for the occurrence with Sandy didn't happen until February of 1990. Richard was charged with assault in the third degree and unlawful imprisonment in the second degree. Richard's lawyer dragged Sandy through the mud, accusing him of making it all up, um, that perhaps he dreamed it as Richard denied any wrongdoing. Richard's defense lawyer toward the end of the trial had this, this, had this to say to the judge, quote, The problem here is, judge, that I believe Mr. Harrow, Sandy, is nuts. Well, I guess the judge believed him because he dismissed all charges and Richard was a free man. Courtney? I don't really have good explanations for this other than, you know, Richard was very soft-smoking and maybe the judge just couldn't envision someone like him being violent in this way. That and in general during this time that the justice system didn't seem to care about crimes against the gay community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, the um, the book that we've referencing does go quite a bit into detail about um, all of the crimes that were happening against the gay community and how it was increasing and how violent they were, and there wasn't a whole lot being done. Right. So, May 5th, 1990, 1991, a turnpike maintenance worker was doing his thing in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. He was at a rest stop emptying trash, ba- trash barrels and sorting for recyclables when he tried to pull out a bag that he could not lift up. He found a stick and started to open the bag, but then there was another bag inside of it, and then another bag inside of it, and another. Eight bags in total were used. He saw what looked like a loaf of bread inside the bag when he finally got the last one open, but it was a loaf of bread with freckles. At that, he got on his walkie and called the state police. The corpse was fingerprinted as well as the bags, but his identity was not yet evidence. evident. The body had been mutilated, stabbed in the back, and pretty much gutted. Also, the penis had been removed and put into the victim's mouth. Courtney, do you want to speculate as to the motivation behind the penis being placed into the victim's mouth? Well, there is certainly some symbolism happening here. Um, you know, dismemberment itself can represents a feeling of of disconnection or wanting disconnection to be separate from something sort of within the self that is unwanted. The penis itself is associated with masculinity and sexuality. You know, shocking, I know. Um, And so kind of put these together and one interpretation of this victim's penis being placed in his mouth could be that the killer is struggling with his own homosexual identity perhaps viewing it as a weakness or a defect. And this is a way of kind of asserting his masculinity and power and dominance over kind of that problem through this victim. Well, it wasn't until five days later, um, a truck driver found another bag on the road with the personal items of the victim. It had his ID. So this John Doe was actually Peter Stickney Anderson, 54 of Philadelphia, Um, Through his personal items, they were able to get a little bit of information. They figured out that the night before his body was found, he was at the Blue Parrot, a historically gay club in Philadelphia. Witnesses told police that Peter was, quote, wasted when they saw him at the bar. Um, After the Blue Parrot closed, Peter and a few friends went to a late night bar down the street called the Townhouse. Peter was eventually cut off at this establishment, but Peter wanted to keep going 
um, and his, but his friend that he was with Hoyt was just done for the night. He rented a room for Peter at the Waldorf and dropped him off. Courtney, if I ever have the money, I'll rent you a room at the Waldorf if you get out of control. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Security helped him check into the hotel, but Peter never actually finished the check-in process, and eventually he was escorted back out to the street, and that was the last he was seen. Um, the next victim turned up over a year later, and his name was Thomas Richard McKay. He was a 57-year-old bisexual man, married and father of four, who was visiting New York on business. His body was found in a similar fashion. A New Jersey Department of Transportation employee was attempting to clean up some um, DOT trash cans on the route. They came to one area where there were some bags next to the trash cans, and one of the bags contained a human head. A couple hours later, down the road, another couple of workers were emptying trash, and they found human remains in heavy black bags. There were six bags in total. One with a head, one with arms, the third with intestines, and the fourth with the upper torso, trunk, and abdomen. Fourth, yeah. The next bag contained the lower abdomen and pelvis. The sixth and final bag had the legs. Medical examiners determined the victim had been stabbed to death. What was also noted was the skill that it took for the body to be dismembered in the way that it was. It took skill and it took strength. As with the first victim, all of his personal belongings were included, you know, in a bag near the well not not thrown away the the identification was easy to find eventually um the police were able to trace um the the victim to which we said was thomas um to the townhouse where a witness told police he spoke to tom for a while until tom was distracted by another man in the bar and went over to talk to that man the witness then lost lost sight of him and assumed tom had left with the man so that was his last known whereabouts Courtney, the police at this point are thinking that this murder is awfully cocky to leave victim identification with the bodies or, you know, easily found. He really didn't even try to hide, you know, the bodies themselves. Do you have any thoughts on this? So on the one hand, you know, we can look at this behavior as the killer feeling emboldened by not having been caught yet. So just kind of getting overconfident. Um or they may also want people to know that they are specifically targeting gay men who frequent gay bars. You know, it's possible that the killer considered what he was doing to be a sort of kind of like a moral cleansing, similar to, you know, some killers that we've talked about who targeted like addicts or sex workers. Um, and this killer does have a very Dexter vibe. Um Yes, he, he does. I mean, Dexter, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that the victim profile is the same, but the way that the victims are treated is similar to what Dexter did. So that's very true. And anyways, on May 10th, 1993, the body of a 44 year old homosexual sex worker by the name of Anthony Edward Marrero was found within the confines of six garbage bags. He, too, was ultimately killed by stab wounds, then meticulously taken apart. He was found by a resident in the area of Manchester Township in New Jersey. At first, he thought what he saw when he drove by was that of a deer carcass, but on a second go-around, he saw fingers. He then called the Manchester police. So it looks like an animal had removed an arm from one of the bags and dragged it into the road, and that was what originally, you know, what he thought might be part of an animal carcass. But other than that, it was the same pattern as the last murder. Same dismemberment and bagging, dumped in an area near people. Now, they did not find this victim's, this victim's identification, but the fingerprints they took matched someone in their criminal database. So they were able to verify who he was. 
By this time, based on some of the evidence, such as the garbage bags and a few other things left with the bodies, the police were able to narrow down the search to someone who lived on Staten Island. They also had many fingerprints that were on several of the plastic bags and evidence, but as far as what they could run at the time, they didn't match anyone. Michael Sakara was a regular at the Five Oaks establishment. In fact, he was thought of as Norm from Cheers. Michael was an openly gay man who was a big dude at over six foot tall and a couple hundred pounds. He was last seen alive in the very early morning hours of July 30th, 1993, right around closing, right in time for the last call. A man entered the bar at this time and sat next to Michael. The bartender did not recognize the man, but Michael said, quote, This is Mark, the nurse. He works at St. Vincent's. Now, that night, Michael had already drunk 12 scotch and waters with nothing to eat. I don't know, Courtney, I guess New York didn't have, like, liquor control the way that Oregon does, but, you know. Or maybe just that establishment didn't care. Yeah, could be. That's, that's a little over-serving, but okay, whatever. On July 31st, a person picking up bottles found Michael's briefcase and a bag with clothes and his wallet and his ID. A few hours later, the owner of a lunch truck was inspecting his trash bins, as they should not have been as full as they were. When he opened a bag, he saw a face staring back at him. Police were called to the scene where the bags were found to hold a head and arms, Nine days after that, the rest of Michael's body was discovered about 10 miles away in Stony Point, New York. Michael's body had been cut into seven pieces, bled out and washed, just like the others. Unlike the others, Michael did not die from the five, five stab wounds he endured, but from a bludgeoning. Courtney, anything you want to say? The Emmys in this case all remarked um, out there how the, uh, kept remarking about the skill involved in the way the bodies were handled. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. And also, I may not have mentioned this earlier, but the bodies all had ligature marks indicating that they were bound at some point. Yeah. So by now it's clear that, I mean, this is a serial killer with a very pronounced modus operandi. Mm -hmm. You know, the killer has consistent victimology, gay men, and a ritualized way of killing and disposing of the bodies. He was practiced and has perfected this method and clearly has knowledge of anatomy and how to break down a body, you know, which could be from someone working in the medical field, could be someone who's an avid hunter, who's mm -hmm. learned to break down, like, deer and things like that. Um, but either way, this guy knows what he's doing by now. Now, during this time, police had been running fingerprints and trying to match them in all the states involved for the killer, but nothing was hitting. They did get tips occasionally, and one of them was about a male nurse who worked at Mount Sinai Hospital, and this nurse was supposedly into bondage, and the person providing the tips said he woke up to a man attempting to bind him. Requests for male nurse photos from Mount Sinai Hospital were made, and the photos were shown to the bartender at the Five Oaks. Nothing registered. So remember, Courtney, Michael said that the, the guy he was talking to worked at St. Vincent's. So the police also requested photos from their male nurses, and one of those photos was kind of close, um, and the, the bartender thought maybe, you know. So they actually brought that guy in for questioning. This guy um, was not ended up not being him. They, they cleared him. Um, this kind of was all, we watched an episode of Mark of the Killer, and it was the last call killer, and they go over this whole process. So anyways, after that, they really didn't have any other leads, um, and the cases went cold. 
But a new technique for lifting fingerprints was discovered by New Jersey State Police in 1999. With this new technique, they were able to lift 35 new prints and some palm prints off of those garbage bags, and they were able to run them through their new systems, and now they got a match. They got a match to his arrest record in Maine, because even though he was acquitted, they still kept his stuff on file. So um, May 28, 2001, the police decide um, they're not going to just directly arrest Richard. They're going to try to bring him down for questioning first. So they go to his place of work and tell him that he might be a victim of credit card fraud. So that got him to willingly leave with them to go to the police station. And um, then they hit him with the real interrogation. He requested legal representation and was arrested. He was officially charged for only two of the murders, as the cases of Thomas McKay and Anthony Marrero had the strongest evidence. At his home, at Richard's home, they found bags similar to the ones used to dispose the bodies and a bottle of Versed, which can be used to knock someone out. The trial began on October 26, 2005, and he was offered a plea deal um, that he could plead guilty to manslaughter and get 32-year sentences um, with possibility of parole after 15 years, so two 32 sentences, but served at the same time, I believe. During the trial, Rogers never testified and was a very quiet presence, so kind of opposite of like some of our other killers. <laughs> Their jury deliberated for less than four hours before um, they apologize. They found him guilty on all charges. So now he's serving two consecutive life sentences in Trenton, New Jersey State Prison. Courtney, um, I sort of just want to briefly discuss the issue that this case, the, ser the serial killer, you know, did not even warrant a Wikipedia page prior to the writing of this book, which was, you know, a pretty recent book. I think it was 2021. I feel that part of this that we've kind of talked to you was the bias against the queer community back then when these murders were occurring. You know, it was right at the height of the AIDS epidemic, and it was in New York City. I had never heard of Richard Roberts, Richard Rogers, but he was thought to have committed, you know, other murders than these ones, you know, the two that he was convicted of and the two other that were fairly certain he did. You know, had he worn gloves, he may not have been discovered for some time because that was what it was that eventually got him caught was his fingerprints. So do you have any thoughts on this? I also hadn't heard of Richard Rogers before we started researching for this episode. And, you know, one possible explanation could be that he was active during a time when other really high-profile serial killers were also being caught and on trial, including Richard Ramirez and Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. um, still, I agree that the prejudice against gay men, particularly during the 1980s and early 90s, was probably a big contributor. You know, similar to the way that the murders of sex workers often went uninvestigated or ignored, you know, the LGBT community was marginalized and written off by police and the public as somehow mattering less than others. And it was and is awful. Yeah. Well, that's the end of Richard Rogers. Short and sweet, as uh, maybe not, but... Right. I mean, because like you said, there's very little there's information. Not, yeah, we couldn't, like, get into any psychiatric profiles or, you know, any, any of his words like yeah not right. a narcissist no not a narcissist yeah. what do you think he is we didn't really totally discuss you know because there's not a ton to go off of but what would you what would you think just antisocial what do you think yeah i'd say he's probably a psychopath yeah mm -hmm. but not a but a quiet one a quiet one <laughs> they do exist yeah mm -hmm. and we just don't see them too much um so i'm gonna do my social media really quick and then you can give us a little 
blip on your killer mm-hmm. that you picked. Mm-hmm. So um, please like, listen, subscribe, follow all of those things. We really appreciate any of that. We are starting to trend a little bit on Apple Podcasts, which is kind of new Woo. for us. Um, we've been big on some, not big, but you know, had bigger numbers on some of the mm-hmm. other platforms. So yay for that. Um, if you want to send us an email with any sort of, uh, I don't know, whatever you want, send us one at addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. Instagram addicted to M podcast, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok at addicted to murder podcast. Yes. Okay. Nice job. So, since this one was just a nice, short, one-and-done mm-hmm. um, episode, then we're going to move on quickly to my next pick. Um, and I think the clue that I'm going to give is that the nickname for this serial killer um, is reminiscent of something from Disney. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a... Something to, to, to speculate. Something to speculate yeah. on. <laughs> so, Courtney, if you run into a creepy-ass guy at the bar down the street that has hospital bracelets in his pocket, what should you do? Go nuts, then go home, and go to therapy. That's right. All right, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.